0: All right, y'all, turn in your Bibles. You'll be in Samuel 5. Today is June 1st, 2008. It is Sunday morning. Our message this morning is called Golden Tumor. Yeah, how about that? Golden Tumor. It's not a tumor. Hey, in our worship service, you see all kinds of things. Some kneel. Some stand. Some clap. Some shout. Some raise their hands. Some speak in tongues. Some prophesy. We're not telling you you have to do anything in here. We're telling you this is the way we as individuals worship God when we join together corporately. And uh, if it's not the way you do it, that's okay. We love you. We ask you to love us and uh, have fun with us as we worship God. We believe worship is supposed to be fun. I'm not trying to force my experience upon you, but my experience is an example. It's an example that I hope you can glean something from, and, uh, and I love that. But I want you to understand I'm not trying to make cookie-cutter Christians that if uh, everybody on the front row has a handkerchief and stands up and gives the wave, that doesn't mean everybody on the second row has to do it. That's just how things work. I've learned people worship God in various ways around the world. I was in Alexandria, Louisiana one time and saw the neatest thing I've ever seen. They had like three generations of pastors, and each chair seemed to get bigger uh, as you went up in the generations. And every once in a while, the oldest patriarch pastor would just stand up in the middle of worship and go, I didn't have any idea what it meant, but everybody else went wild when he did it, and I thought, wow, that's just kind of an expression of praise. It's not how I do it, but cool, I'm glad it's done. I've watched people worship around the globe, and we do it differently, and that's okay. Uh, Also, we recently had all kind of interest from visitors, from guests that want to know about our little church and how it's formed, and... A brother from uh, Mississippi asked us if we were integrated. I have never considered that the body of Christ wasn't integrated. In fact, I don't notice uh, but Matthew's are only Native American in here. You know, Beth happens to be Hispanic. Uh, Debbie's from England. The body of Christ is what it is. And if somebody tries to segment it or make it look a certain way, then that's the work of man, period, and run from it. Okay, so we uh, imagine John and Joy are Vietnamese, and uh, if some more of John and Joy's family come, then there'll be more Vietnamese folks. Michelle's family is from South Texas, and if more of them come, there'll be more South Texans in here. That's the body of Christ. I have always wanted our church to reflect the environment around us because I want to reach the people that are around us. That's where our heart is, but we have no uh, quotas. Uh, does that make sense? We're and, you know, we don't have deacons standing out front telling Nick that all guys with beards can't come in uh, or anything like that. We lift up the name of Jesus and we pray that all men be drawn to us, that people have to have the courage just to be who they are and worship as people. Can y'all say amen to that? All right, then let's get in the Word. Y'all in uh, Samuel 5? 1 Samuel 5. Amen. Uh, we're in a time period in Israel's history in First Samuel 5 that is, is unique. <laughs> I mean, it's really very sad. There is a box that has cherubim over it, and God is said to be enthroned above these cherubim. This box, called an ark, is the visible image that represents God's throne. The, the Hebrews believe that God is actually enthroned above it, and that God is on a chariot throne, meaning that He rides in any direction that He wants. And when people like uh, Ezekiel see heavenly pictures of the throne... They say things like, it moves in any direction without moving. All of this is to show that God's presence is mobile. You don't have to go to Vatican City to get it. Uh, You don't have to go to Springfield, Missouri, to a denominational headquarters to get it. God's presence is ranging the earth. That's what it was supposed to show. But if you had in your hands uh, or in your presence something that represented God's throne then all of a sudden you're not just thinking about it being mobile and God's presence being everywhere. You have something that represents it. And how you treat that shows something about how you feel about God. Well, in Samuel 5, it says, after the Philistines had captured the ark of God. What a strange time in Israel's history. They have so degenerated from what God called them to be that God's presence that went with them into battle, and they usually carry the ark first, and laid waste to other nations. Sometimes God uh, beat the enemy down for them with hailstones. Sometimes He caused them to go into confusion and turn on each other. He fought on behalf of His people. But at this time in Israel's history, their priesthood is wicked. And mostly wicked because the high priest, Eli, would not correct his sons who were doing wicked things in the name of God in the temple. How about that? Uh, That spirit seems to live on. Uh, We read about it in our papers all of the time. People who wear the name Jesus but don't live like it, especially behind pulpits and in their homes. Well, God was upset, and uh, so he allowed the ark of his presence to be captured by the Philistines. This story, then, is going to teach us something. And since we can't read it in Hebrew, I put in your bulletins. I think most people have bulletins with Hebrew words inside them the names of some Philistine municipalities. Uh, if yours doesn't have the actual Hebrew writing, we had a problem with the fonts on one of our printers. So, uh, but I tried to put it there for everybody. So, uh, Samuel 5, one. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now, I couldn't emphasize this enough, but in the ancient world, Dagon's a big deal. Most people think that Dagon is the father of the pagan gods. Have you heard over and over and over in the Bible the word Baal, B-A-A-L? And sometimes it's Baals. It literally means the lords, the sirs, right? Well, ancient mythology says that the Philistines believed that Dagon was the god of all the gods. We might say the most high god. So what we see here is a counterfeit. And Dagon had the body of a fish. Aren't you glad you don't have a god that has got the body of a fish? Yeah, I always wondered what kind of fish. But uh was it catfish? Do you know, was it a redfish? Do you know what? We could fillet him. We could <laughs> go the Roman route and eat our god. Uh, so Dagon's got the body of a fish. He's got the head of a man and the hands of a man. And this fish seems to represent everything that... uh represents fertility, that represents new life, all of those things, they saw him kind of as the author of life. Isn't that interesting? After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Uh, I would ask my little boy, but he's not on the mic. He's memorized the commandments since he was young, and the commandments begin with you shall have no gods besides me, other than me or alongside me, is the idea. And now what we see, is we see in Ashdod a picture of the God that they worship alongside the God that the Jews worship. Can't we all just get along? I mean, it looks kind of like the United Nations in this regard. Let's just put them all out there and we'll all be happy. God goes through great extent in the Older Testament, to show to one specific people group on the planet that there is no one else that is like Him. Because if this one specific people group on the planet will worship Him with all their heart, soul, mind, strength, the other nations will see the greatness of this God and they will flock to Him. God's goal, His desire, was always to take one special people group and electrify them, if you will, magnetize them so that all the other nations would be drawn to them. And he called that people group a nation of priests and named them Israel, princes with God. Now, the church has in no way replaced Israel's mission, but today you see that we've joined in Israel's mission. One people group, called Christians, who have God's presence in us that makes us different and it is supposed to draw the world to the God that we worship. Amen? No different than in Israel's history. So we have an ark of God alongside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Maybe there was an earthquake. Maybe this was like San Francisco. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. If you have a God that you continually have to prop up, uh, there's a problem. But how many times have you been so invested in an idea that you couldn't admit when you were wrong? I made this Bible cover. I made it back in 1994, and I've been very fond of it. Uh, nobody could give me enough praise for it when uh, when I made it. I mean, you couldn't tell me enough how what a nice Bible cover it was because I'm very proud of it. And immature. So those two things were a dangerous combination. And... Uh, I tried to tell someone else that was making one with me, I think this is the way to make it. But he had so invested in the idea that his design was better, he was committed to it, even when it was clear it wouldn't work. Wasted a couple hundred dollars in leather. I found out something about human beings. When we spend time planning something, when we spend time investing in something, when we spend time thinking that a certain way is right, we're very slow to turn around damaging to our pride. If I could tell you anything this morning, it's when God causes the miniature gods in your life to fall down in front of you on a regular basis. When you're starting to see that the things that you put your hope in are not right, you need to be quick to repent. Quick to turn around. Because the price is so high if God has to ratchet it up to get your attention. He loves you. He'll fight for you. And the price is high. And sometimes we are so slow to turn around, convinced that we're righteous in our own eyes. But let's move on. When the people of Ashod rose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Now, I don't know about you, but if I find a snake in the backyard, I'm not content just to leave it there. I'm also not content just to to kill it. I I always cut off its head. And uh, that's because I never want to walk out in the backyard and have to deal with that snake again. And even the snake's dead body, I don't want to bump into its, uh, what do you call those things? And... uh, get hurt. I don't want to. So i cut off its head and go bury it or throw it away or something. And I feel like that's what God did to Dagon. He said, you know, I'd kind of like to settle this once and for all. So I knocked him over. But you know what? They keep popping him back up. These people are not all that smart. So this time, he cut off his head in his hand. Now, if you were a Philistine and all of your life you had been worshiping Dagon and said, Dagon is the father of all the gods, Dagon is the highest, in this little bitty box that's a few cubits by a few cubits that represents God, when it's set in front of Dagon, knocks him down and cuts off his head and hands, what kind of message do you think that that would send to you? And yet, saints, in our lives, if we will set the presence of God before any problem that we have, any problem, Debt that you face, bad decisions that you've made, marriages that are coming apart. Whatever it is, God's presence will break the head and hands off of the enemy. He always has done that for His people. He sends His presence before us to fight battles for us. Now here's what's funny, is the people of God didn't want God's presence among them. They didn't value it. And do you know how they didn't value it? How you know they didn't? They would not walk in the way that God said to walk. So God allows his presence to be taken via the ark into the heart of the enemy's territory. This is amazing. Ashdod, in Hebrew, Ashdod is a Philistine city, but the Hebrews named it Ashdod. That's what the Hebrews called it. It Says the ravager. See, there's something that was ravaging God's people. God's people looked like the world. God's people had adopted too many Philistine ways. And God's people looked with envy and longing upon the lives that the Philistines had. So God's presence went and knocked down the ravager and it broke off his head and his hands. How interesting is that? Sometimes we sit and we contemplate how big our problems are. And we lay in bed at night thinking about all the ways that we've made this so bad that it cannot be fixed. And the whole world will join join with you in that pity party. The whole world will. And yet anything that we fight to get into the presence of God suddenly becomes small in His sight. It's just a matter of perspective and what we get closest to. If you dwell and think about all that is wrong in the world, then that's all you'll see. It'll ever be before your eyes. If you put God's presence before everything else, You will see God's presence in everything that you do. Let's keep reading. His head and hands were broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priest of Dagon nor any of the others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. You see, guys, it wasn't supernatural. What it was is that the threshold was a little bit uneven. The carpenters who laid it, they didn't get it quite level and there must have been a strong wind that day. Or you never know, uh, but something scientific probably knocked it over, so we just won't step there. See, there's always been a spirit that explains away God's working. Have you seen miracles in your life only to have years go by and you even think upon those miracles and wonder whether it was quite like you remember it? I'm very glad... But in my life, many times I've had brothers and sisters there. Matthew and I were on a street called Chine Street in Baton Rouge. A drunk man reached out to punch me in the face. And it was as if his hand hit a a pane of glass or something in front of me. I'm wincing all of those things, expecting for contact to come, and it didn't. And frustrated, he reached out to choke me. And there was something between us. And in that moment, I realized that God had placed a shield or something between us. And I got excited, giddy excited. And as I walked towards him, he couldn't stand it being pushed backwards. You know, as time goes on, you wonder, Well, am I just remembering that wrong, you know, I was only eighteen. Was it just a fanciful memory? But God has provided a witness. God has provided somebody who was there with me in the beginning that saw those very same things so that the devil's not been able to steal them from me. What fellowship is supposed to be. Fellowship is supposed See that when Skip looks at Bob and says, you know, did it really happen like that? Oh yeah, brother, I remember you were in a bad way, but God delivered you and He can do it again. Take heart. The enemy's work to erase this, but everywhere this ark of God goes is going to lay waste to the enemy. Did you uh, hear that the city's name was the rabbit? Did you hear that? This turns then to Genesis. You leave your finger here because we're going to keep coming back to this. In Genesis 41, we have a story that is fairly familiar, but it's worth reading. You've got to understand ravaging is different than being pressed, different than being stressed. It's different than to exterminate you. This word ravaging is really a nice way to say assaulted in a uh, bad way. You understand what I'm trying to tell you without saying ugly things in front of the kids? The biblical word ravage has to do with an assault. Uh, you usually think of it as male and female. An assault, okay? There are things in our life that try to humiliate us, that try to steal our faith, that try to leave us with a sense of shame so that we can't come before our God. And uh, the Bible called that city that symbolized this the Ravager. So in Genesis uh, 41, let's start in the 28th verse. It says, "...it is just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do." By the way, Joseph speaking before the Pharaoh who is basically king of the known world at the time. "...seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten." and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. God set up a time in the world where there would be great blessing followed by ravaging effect upon the earth, something that violated the earth, that made it seem lesser than what God created it to be, that hid the glory of God from the rest of the world. In our lives, we don't need specified times where that occurs because the devil's working all of the time to cause those things to happen. How many times have you met somebody and they said, well, I was hurt in church, or I used to do this, but... And then some event ravaged and assaulted their faith. And now they're hurt and walking around carrying those scars. That's the scenario that the whole world is in and watch what God does. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of the Pharaoh. To be kept in the city for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all that known to you, There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be put in charge of my palace, and all people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a... Chariot as his second in command. And men shouted before him, Make way. Another way to say that would be prepare the way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zathanoth-Paneah, which many of you know means Savior. See, the, the cure, the cure for the famine that would come and ravage the whole world, was that God would appoint one man as his second in command, if you will. Somebody who would speak for him. Somebody that you could deal with as an intermediary or a representative. He would have all the authority of God, and yet he would be a man like you. So he would understand the effects. He may even weep when he saw the world ravaged by death or sin. And in this one man who rode upon a chariot like God's chariot throne and had the name Savior, you would find the answer for every problem that you faced during the years that reached the world. Now that begs the question, saints, when we find ourselves in trouble, what is it that we run to? Do we run to the phone to talk to all of our relatives? Mom, you won't believe what he did this time. Dad, you need to get over here quick. My kids, blah, blah, blah. My children are sick. What do I do? Do you have any money? Do we run to the phone or do we run to the throne? See, because we have a God that will knock down any problem that the devil puts in our lives to ravage our lives. We have a God that not only will knock it down, if it is set back up, he will break his head and hands off of it. Our God is mighty to save. Our God is interested in delivering His people. It just depends upon where your perspective is, though. If all you can see is that you're being ravaged, you don't see the chance for God to deliver. I'm persuaded that every trial that enters our life is merely an opportunity to see God's deliverance. Every single one. I don't know what your trials are, but I know who our God is. And that makes me not unconcerned about your trials, but forgive me if I don't weep and cry and come apart at the scenes as if God can't fix them. After 15 years of this, I've seen Him fix enough to know that there's not a problem that exists here that He can't fix. I've seen those condemned to death that live. I've seen those who the devil has ritually abused them since they were child, children, through horrible situations made whole, and dance in His glory, free from shame, free from problems. In fact, it gets to the point where when people are whining about depression and you look at their lives and you know what other people have experienced, it's difficult to find sympathy for it. In fact, one of our new slogans is that sympathy will only be dispensed in small quantities and pity not at all. I put it on a bumper sticker, but your cars aren't as big as Adam's and mine. (laughs) There is a force in this world that wants to ravage us, but God has appointed somebody, His second in command, if you will. And only with respect to the throne is there any difference between them. Turn back with me to Samuel. Incidentally, the ark was in a place called Ebenezer. We say Ebenezer. It's a compound word in Hebrew and it means the rock of my help. The ark... The presence of God was in a place known as the rock of my help. A rock in times of trouble. All those things. But they no longer wanted God's presence. So God went to demonstrate His skills. You thought Napoleon Dynamite had skills with his bow staff? You did begin to see our God works. He goes into the heart of the enemy's territory to a city called the Ravager. And what does he do? He lays it waste. Watch what happens. His head and his hands had been broken off, only his body remained. That is why, to this day, the priest of Dagon, nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod, step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. Most of the ancient commentaries on this say tumors that were the result of rats. Any history buffs in here? Because there were rats that brought a plague all over Europe. And it was most known by its tumors. It's where we get the little song, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. All of those things come from that time period in our history. Apparently it was predated all the way back in Philistia because this sounds like the bubonic plague. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And isn't that really the question? What shall we do? We can no longer deny that the presence of God is here. We see some blessed by it and others cursed by it, but we know that it's here. How do we respond to it? Well, if you're a southern denomination, you simply declare that it can't move in your midst and throw it out. I want the presence of God in my life at all cost. At all cost. Whether it lays waste to the kingdom that I've built for myself or not. Because I would rather have vegetables with the righteous than meat with the wicked. I have found out that there is only one thing in this world that is worth at all serving, and that's him. So the people of Ashdod are starting to get this message. You know, ever since we tried to equate the of Israel with Dagon, not only did he slap him around like a red-headed stepchild, but now he's leaning on us. Man, that's bad. What are we going to do about this? They answered, have the ark of God of Israel moved to Gath? See, gas, those people are our buddies. They're in the same kingdom as we are. The ark has been such a blessing to us. It brought us to bubonic plague. Let's give it to them. This is like when you adopted a pet on the weekend. It sands, right? People are out there and you see the little puppy and you think, oh, man, the puppy is so hot. I got to take it home." And then it eats your, your linoleum floor. So you bless your aunt with it. Yeah. I hope Janine's not watching. I actually did that. I'm still learning. I'm growing. I'm in process. It was my wife's fault. (laughs) So they said, let's send it to Gath. Now, I have this opinion that this idea was not their own. What God wanted to do was have His presence sent from place to place to place in Philistia. And the reason is, I think He wanted to show both Israel and Philistia that His presence laid waste the enemies of God and propped up the humble lovers of God. Gath in your bulletin says it means wine press. It has to do... It actually means press and vat. And the idea is it's what puts you between a rock and a hard place. The word gath has to do in Hebrew with being squished. Where's Big Squish? we renamed him Big Slice because he's going to move to the deli. But it has to do with being pushed. Have you never felt pushed by the world? Felt like the world had you between... Pitch and mortar. Had you in a grinder, so to speak. Man, I have. In fact, what do we call it when we go to work? We call it the daily grind, grind, right? Because just interacting with worldly people on a regular basis is sometimes wearing upon your righteous soul. And before long, you might find that it's refining you. And that while your soul is righteous, you still have some tendencies that aren't. At least I find that. I'm sure that y'all don't. So we're in Gath, city of the winepress. Let's see how Gath fares. They answered, "Have the ark of God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of two hmm. seems that no matter where God goes, whether he's in the city that ravages His people, or whether He's in the city that puts His people between the rock and a hard place, God's not afflicted. What could be the overwhelming message there for you? Do you think maybe God is trying to say your problems are not as big as He is? That what ravages you, what puts you in a wine press squeezing every last little ounce of your life out is not a problem for Him at all? Maybe He wants to show you that He can knock it down for you if you will simply dwell with His presence. Did you know there's not an Israelite with the ark at the moment? That's right, saints. God doesn't need you. You just get to come along. I have a preacher friend who was asked to come speak at a place because of the great numbers of people that were being saved when he spoke. Now, truthfully, there were not great numbers of people being saved when he spoke. There were great numbers of people coming from the audience to the altar. Most of them came to the altar centers and left the altar centers, but he was in a denomination that greatly valued numbers. you all understand what I'm saying? They put little plaques on the wall, they had high attendance Sundays, those kind of things. And a great revelation in his life was he was asked to come speak somewhere because of his reputation as an evangelist. And when he got there, during the worship service, he felt that he hadn't felt in a long time. He felt the presence of God strongly upon him. And the presence of God spoke to him in a still small whisper and said, Rick, you don't know his last name, won't matter. Matt does. I don't need you. Stand up and give the altar call and sit down and shut up. And he said, but Lord, they are expecting a performance here. He said, I don't need you give the altar call, and sit down and check it. Shut up. Doesn't it sound better in Hebrew? Sheck it. To this man's credit, he stood, he gave the altar call, and 90% of the seats got empty quick. And they had a revival in that place. This began a transformation in this man's life. Now, I don't know where he is today with Jesus, but I know what he was then was a paid hireling and a miserable human being. But what he had the chance to be after learning that lesson was somebody who was in the employ of God and empowered by His Spirit. And I was proud that He took that step. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us at all. We need Him. The most difficult times in our life are when we intellectually acknowledge that God is there and that we love Him and that He's awesome, but our life acts as if we don't need Him because we don't invite Him to our parties and we don't take Him with us on our dates and He doesn't really dwell in every area of our life. He just dwells in the compartments that we like to keep in. I taught a meeting the other night. I wonder which of those girls would like to be picked up, fine suit, nice, nice looking young man, out to a nice dinner, proclaim love, faithfulness. There is Nobody like you, sweetheart. But every other day of the week could care less, didn't want you around, didn't want to talk to you. Maybe embarrassed of you if other friends saw you. A lot of people's relationship with God is very much that way. They're proud of Him on Sunday while they're all in their best clothes and telling each other lies. But during the week, He has no real presence in their life. This cannot be. It can't be. You can look like a sheep, but if you got canine teeth, my friend, we need to repent. There has always been that in the church. I was one of them for a long time till I realized what was at stake. Not only my soul, but the souls of other people, and I began to care. How about that? The wine press. Keep your hand here in Samuel. I want to read you something in the book of Isaiah. We'll be in Isaiah... 63. It's potluck Sunday. You can't smell the food in here, can you? Uh (laughs) Uh Let that hunger sharpen your desire for the Word and not work against it. The good news is, you know, I can't preach too terribly long today. The food will get cold. Thank you there, young maze. alright you All right, y'all in Isaiah 63, the wine pressed. Who is coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garment stained, crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forth on the brightness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Whose name means mighty to save and spoke righteousness? The Hebrew word Yeshua, Jesus. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and I trod them down in my wrath. Their blood shattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption has come. I looked but there was no one to help me. Told that no one gave support, so my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Before I read you the second half of this, the world thinks that they're in control. They think that they're the ones that bring the pressure. we'll find out much differently. Our salvation includes retribution. And what I mean by that is not that we have an angry spirit, not that we're hoping. In fact, you learn to pray for your enemies so that they don't fall under God's wrath because you know what they don't know. Although they're stepping on your neck now, there is a day when God will trample down all of the enemies of God in His winepress. I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which He has been praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, these many good things He has done for the house of Israel, according to His compassion and many kindnesses. He said, Surely they are My people, sons of whom not false to Me. And so He became their Savior. In all their distress, He too was distressed. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and mercy He redeemed them, He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. I didn't read you that to picture Jesus as bloody, but I want you to understand the truth is there is a point in history where He becomes angry with those that have been angry with you and with His people. Those who have stood against Israel and those grafted into Israel. And they get a dose of what they've been given. I don't want to find myself in that group. Have you heard all of your life that God is a God of love? Well, He is also a God that tramples down the nations that stand against Him. He's also a God that is just enough to punish eternally. That's no small thing. I talked with a believer this week that said the fear of God came upon them and it's like their head came out of a fog. I understand exactly what that's like. It's so easy. There's a dulling influence all around that says you don't have to be that serious about God. Look around. How many churches are on this road? And some of them very good, I'm sure, full of people that really love the Lord. I'm not saying otherwise. But how many churches are on this road? that each have their own little unique take, right? They all are basically got a menu that says you can pick what you want here. If you don't like it, move down to the next one. You can pick what you want there. It all speaks a message upon us, a message of assimilation. You can be just like the world and have Jesus too. Nothing could be further from the truth, saints. If you want His presence to knock down your problems, you have to be wholly devoted to Him. We have to resist that worldly assimilation. And it's all around us all of the time. And I'll tell you one worse It's inside you. It's your natural tendency. But God also put something else inside of you. He put His presence to knock down all the problems that you face, to knock down all the things that would try to hold you captive. Let's not forget, Philistia at this time is a captor of Israel. They conquered Israel over and over and over. One more scripture in Joel. I just feel like I ought to do it. We'll be in Joel 3. best way to find Joel is to turn to Matthew, book in the New Testament, and then hang a left. Joel was among the minor prophets. Tell me when you're there. It's not entirely off subject, but I feel like I'm going to read it. Joel 3, In those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Have you ever heard that old southern expression, Jumping Jehoshaphat? Yeah, you don't hear it much anymore. Steve said it the other day, made me think about it. Jehoshaphat means judgment. The valley of Jehoshaphat is a place where God judges. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel. For they scattered my people among the nations and they divided up my land. Next time you turn on CNN, the Communist News Network, notice that they are always talking about dividing God's land. God defined a specific group of, of uh, boundaries for His land, for His people. And the world keeps talking about a two-state solution. Uh, I really can't get all political on us today. We won't get back to our message. Jordan is the two-state solution. It's already occurred. It didn't work. Now what they want is to divide God's land again and again and again because the world has no place for God's people unless they assimilate. There's a message in that thing. The spirit of this world does not want you in it. You know that because you can see God's natural people, the nation of Israel, and the world has no place in their hearts for them. Push them into the sea. Push them into the sea. So how is it that you stand? Well, you're faced with two things. You stand with the presence of God as your defender, or you assimilate. Most of the church has chosen to assimilate to the point where most of the church doesn't even like God's natural people, the natural olive branches. But that's another message. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they might drink. Now what have uh, you against me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. Skip on down to verse 9. Prepare the... uh, Pre- proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations, on every side, and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of judgment." "...for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness." goes on to talk about multitudes in the valley of decision on a day in which the sun goes dark and the moon turns blood red and it sounds very much like the second coming. You see, but we don't have to wait for the second coming. Our valley of decision is today with every decision that we make. There is a time coming where those that have the presence of God are glorified with it. And those that do not have the presence of God are judged by it. Philistine's city was named Gath. They thought they were the ones that would do all of the pressing. And yet there is a day coming when their pressure on you to assimilate will be crushed. And they will either find themselves in the kingdom of God or outside of it where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Turn back to Samuel 5. Get back on message. You guys can't digress like that. Verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the Ark of God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. Isn't it great how the world treats their own? You know, this thing called boils for us, I think, is the bubonic plague. Let's give it to our neighbors in Gath. Gath gets it and says, yep, bubonic plague and rats, that's true. Seems like God's mad at us. Let's give it to Ekron. You ever had a friend that only liked you for whatever you could do for them, and if your four-wheeler broke, they no longer came over to play? Yeah. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place. Ekron has to do with extermination. I put in your brochure, eradication. When the world cannot ravage you any longer because the presence of God protects you and you will not stand for it, it will try to assimilate you. It will try to put you in a wine press until you give up and just become like them. And when you stand against that and it can't do it, there will be one solution. Hitler called it his final solution. We've got to kill him. But the presence of God laid waste to Ekron as well. I was going to read to you Esther 10, but instead I think I'll tell you. It says that there was one Jew who God made famous. His name was Mordecai. And in the kingdom he was in, God elevated him to the place where he was second in command because there was a wicked antichrist-like figure named Haman. And Mordecai stood with God, and Haman stood to exterminate the people of God. So God caused the name of Mordecai to be honored everywhere, and Haman got hung and impaled on the gallows that he built to kill the Jews. There's a message in this, friends. As it goes with the nation of Israel, so it goes with us. The world has tried to throw them out of every country they've ever been in. I've been to Yad Vashem. It's a Holocaust museum, one of the hardest things you'll ever do. They take Israeli seniors in high school, walk them through there and say, we're going to put you in the army for at least two years, and we're going to do that because this is what the world will do to you if you don't learn to defend yourself. Well, saints, the church, those of us grafted into Israel's promises, their promises, us grafted into them, we don't take up arms to defend ourselves. We carry with us the presence of God. But if you don't, I want you to understand something. The world has plans for you. The world wants to ravage you. It wants to press you into assimilation, and if it can't, it wants to eradicate you stomp you off the face of the earth. I had a boss one time that looked me in the eye after I'd been there for about a month and he said, I feel convicted of sin when I'm around you. It's funny, I thought I was failing because I wasn't talking about Jesus a lot. Apparently actions speak louder than words. People react to that in different ways. One will decide he hates you because you make him feel guilty. Another will admire you and want to become like you. Your life puts the rest of the world in the valley of decision. When we live as God called, uh, called us to live, it portrays the gospel of Christ and it demands a reaction from people. And you'll start to see people say things like, if Brandon can do it, I should too. Where do you go to church, Brandon? I so, said, dude, it's not the magic of my church, it's the magic of my God. And what What'd you eat today, Brandon? You know, How do you do that? Our lives need to demand of people a response. But if we're still stuck in gas, being assimilated all of the time, we look like everybody else. We act like they do. We look like they do. And when we're pressed, what comes out is the same thing that comes out of the Philistines. So they called together the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or He, the footnote here says, He will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic, and God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. I don't have time to read the next chapter, so I want to tell you about it. They get together, these five rulers, and you've got to love the way the world makes decisions. They felt incompetent at this point. They're pretty well failing the cities. They've brought the bubonic plague upon all of them. So they said, you know what we'll do? We'll get a cart. We'll put the ark on it and two cows. Two milk cows. And we'll let the cows make the decision for us. Isn't that funny? The world in all of its wisdom when pressed by God, when pressed, when they're not in control, they're not the ones squeezing you. They respond to animal-like decisions, don't they? Whatever feels best. Whatever's easiest. The way that Jude says it is, they're ruled by mere natural instinct. But we're supposed to be ruled by the Spirit of God. In any case, God works through this, because it's all He's got to work with there. They said, these tumors that have come upon us seem to be the work of the God of Israel, so let us make gold tumors and put them in the ark. That may sound gross. sounds pretty gross to me. Tumors are something we usually cut away. What they were trying to say is we understand that this is divine retribution upon us and we're sorry. We don't want it anymore. They don't understand the way to be saved because the people of God did not do their job. But they do know one thing. They don't want to be under the wrath of God anymore. And friends, that's a start. I never try to scare people with my preaching. But I do want to tell you if all you are is scared of God, it may not be where you need to be, but it is the beginning of wisdom. It's a start. So they take five, because there's five rulers, golden tumors, put it in the ark, and they send it back to the people. They say, look, if the cows go towards Israel, we'll be sure this was God. If the cows want to stay here, then, you know, this was probably all one big coincidence. It says that the cows went back to Israel. They went to a city called Beth Shemesh, and it said that they... Load all the way. Isn't that funny? Load all the way. Well, I'm not, you know, a King James kind of guy, and I wasn't real sure what load was. It's the noise cows make. They blew the horn, so to speak, the whole way, saying, The ark of God all by itself just whipped five Philistine rulers in three different cities and has now plundered them and is coming back with their gold. Okay. <laughs> Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh. Beth is house. Shemesh is brilliant light. Brilliant light like the sun. It usually means sun. See, the ark of God was in the place that is the rock of help, but they didn't want it. So he went to the enemies of God in the cities called ravaged, and he ravaged them. And then in the cities called pressing or assimilation, And he pressed them. Then he went to the city called Ekron, where they tried to eradicate God's people. And he laid his hand so heavily upon them that they felt eradicated. So they sent it back to the house of glory. Think that's a neat message? Wait till you hear the rest. The ark didn't stay in the house of glory because the people there didn't know what they had and didn't want it. So the ark came to rest in a place called Kiryas Jeremiah, which means city of pickets or sin. But it didn't just rest in the city of sin. It rested in a man's house named Abinadab, who means father of the willing. See, so you may live in the city of sin, but if you're willing, God will set up His presence in your life. He doesn't desire to dwell in the city of glory. He desires to dwell in the broken and contrite heart of men. Some dispute over Amenadab's name. Some say it doesn't mean father of the willing. It means father of the noble. And I laughed and said it's the same thing. If you're willing, he'll make you noble. When you read this in Hebrew, which I can't, but I can define the words like a kid trying to learn Spanish. Get out my dictionary and define them. It tells a different story. It tells the story of the presence of God that went out from among His own people and laid waste to the enemy and then came to rest in the house of those who were willing to hold Him even though they were in the city of sin. Friends, I think there's a message here for us today along those lines. I called it golden tumor because it's a wise thing to realize that the retribution, the devastation in your life is divine. divine. You're the cause of it, and God is right in allowing it to happen. But if you will dwell in the presence of God, He will knock down all the enemies for you. Quit blaming God for the things that have happened in your life and stand up and be a man or woman and recognize it's probably your own bad choices. It's probably from the times that you didn't want the rock of your help. You played in Ashdod and Ekron and Gath. But even if that's where you find yourself, God will break the head and hands off of your enemies, and he will come to dwell in the hearts of the willing, if you allow him. That's why the book of Revelation says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I wonder whose heart he's knocking at now. He said, But I'm already saved. Well, have you lived like it? I could care less when you were baptized or what six-foot-tall icicle told you you were saved. What does your heart tell you? Does your spirit bear witness with God's Spirit? Does His Spirit tell you, yes, you're a son and I'm proud of you? Or do you walk in here with a certain sense of shame? It doesn't have to be that way. There should never be another day where you walk through the doors of a church with a sense of shame. God's presence can wipe away everything. We don't have to live like the Philistines anymore. Y'all stand to your feet. We'll pray.